I was with seven world-renowned artists. I was not in their league. I am now because I got to see what they do, how they do it. I saw their practice and it changed my practice. It changed how I saw myself. I am competent in what I'm doing. I feel confident and it's all together. This is Women Killing It. Women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today, I'm here with Tamara Staples. She's a fine art and commercial photographer, and her work has appeared in Harper's Magazine, Time Out New York, New York Times, Men's Journal, O Magazine, New York Magazine, and Town and Country, to name a few. Her work has been featured on NPR's This American Life and CNN. Tamara is the recipient of a NYFA grant, PDN Self-Promotion Award, the Bronze Award from the 2014 Royal Photographic Society, and is a fellow of the Rauschenberg Residency. Congratulations, Tamara, you are killing it. Yay! <laughs> thanks for coming and talking to me today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Could you first start out telling us about what you're working on now? What it, what, how are you spending your time these days? Well, I'm right in the middle of a huge project called Side Effects May Include, which debuted at the Institute of Contemporary Art in San Jose last March. It was very exciting, my first museum show. And now I'm preparing three more shows this year for that same show. And what I've been doing very recently since December is creating a wallpaper flavor paper based in Brooklyn. And they commissioned me through this project, Side Effects May Include, to do a wallpaper with pharmaceutical pills. Could you tell us more about what Side Effects May Include is about and how you got it into a museum like that? Yes, it's a very personal project for me. My sister suffered with bipolar disorder. And she took her life with pharmaceuticals. And of course, that was devastating. But when she died, I asked her husband to send me the contents of her medicine cabinet because she had a very intense relationship with medication. She traveled with luggage of just her pills and she was on a regiment and it didn't help her. In fact, it I saw a huge decline over the last 10 years of her life as she got on more and more and more. And so when I got the pills, I just, as a photographer, I'm a still life photographer. So I wanted to just arrange them and look at them. And they were things she had touched. You know, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm like dealing with the grief I have. I just was on this clear trajectory to understand what the pills were about. I took every single pill, researched it. I inventoried it. I worked with a designer, Lynn Yamans, who's amazing designer. She's a book designer and she put together a book for me, which I self-published. And it's 114 medications that were both over the counter and um, prescribed to her. And from there, as a photographer, I've always been a two-dimensional photographer, you know, I make prints and put them in frames, but this work just screamed to me that it should be an installation. And I wanted to create the experience of what the drugs were in my sister's body and, you know, the, the bedroom was the most intimate space of the house where you go to rejuvenate and to just decompress. And I don't know what you know about the drugs, but like these drugs that are psychotropics have a shelf life and within the body. They work for a certain time and then they no longer work. And then there's this interruptus 
just incapacitation that one must retreat. And so I started taking all of the different designs that I made and, and I had dresses made from them. I made wallpaper, curtains, I upholstered chairs and made a quilt and put up artwork. And I even made a, I did a video of like water surface to just show sort of like the tenuous movement of our bodies and how quickly they'll change through just the illustration of wind on the surface. And I created this bedroom and it's very overwhelming when you walk into it. I wouldn't think that you could take pills and make something so gorgeous. But that was part of your own working through your grief, but also trying to understand, it sounds like. Well, I wanted to see what it felt like. I have suffered with anxiety and I have taken once, I took some medication, but I'm very anti-medication and I worked really hard to get off of it. And through dietary changes and exercise, I no longer suffer with that anxiety. But as an artist, it's just such always the issue of how do I communicate something? And that's how it led to this bedroom. I'm also very anti-medication and I come from a different perspective, which is that I used to work at the New York Attorney General's office and I used to investigate. I did a lot of um, investigations of anti-competitive conduct in the pharmaceutical industry. Wow. Also the medical industry. And I just saw how there are so many profit incentives that supersede patient care and are exactly in opposition to what's good for patients. Well, it goes back even further than that. Like the beginning of the clinical studies, even from what I've been reading, they hide results, they're paid for by the pharmaceutical companies, and then the medical journals only want to publish the positive results. And so that was something I did during this process is I sent this hardbound book of the inventory to my sister's doctor and ask him, who is culpable here? I mean, I certainly feel like I'm part of the problem. I knew she was going through this. I didn't know the extent. But I think it's just, you know, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I found a lot of things that need to be investigated, and I'm trying to just show them in a different light and the way that I know how to present it. I think that's so important because there's a lot of people who are working on these issues from more of a policy perspective, like what I'm familiar with, and to see it from an artistic perspective I think is very powerful. And you need to get people to open their eyes and to not just take what the doctors tell you because the whole you know education of doctors is messed up. They don't even know how to treat the whole body. It makes absolutely no sense because the body is a system. So to have one doctor who knows one part of you and one doctor, you know, there are so many things wrong with it. I've talked to people about this, but I've heard that most of what they're training now is just medication. It's not even the whole body. I'm, I don't know of one person who's ever been to a doctor and been walked away like, why are you giving me this medication? And boy, those side effects sure aren't helping, and then nothing happens. Yeah. But how did you go about getting into a museum? Because that's a big accomplishment. Well, photographers have a really unique opportunities through sort of like a pay-to-play situation where I go, every couple of years there's a conference in Houston called PhotoFest, and you pay and you go and you put yourself up in a hotel room and you're just there with all these curators and gallerists and anybody who's interested in fine art photography. And I've done that three times and I've always gotten shows through that. But also it's just about meeting. I mean, 
There's contests, you know, like submissions. I was invited to come to the Robert Rauschenberg residency, which is basically the pinnacle. I mean, I've only been to one residency. I'm sorry I had to start there (laughs) because it was heaven um, just in terms of the opportunity and the facilities. And it's in Captiva, Florida, which is it's on 20 acres on the Gulf of Mexico. And it's just stunning. And Robert Rauschenberg lived there and his studio was there. In fact, I worked in the very studio where he died until two o'clock one morning where I heard some sounds and that's another story. (laughs) But the reason that I was there was one of these submissions, right? Through photo, uh, it's called a photo lucida out in Portland, Oregon. And they run a contest, it's called Critical Mass. And it's wonderful because you submit your work, but then hundreds of curators and gallerists and published art book publishers look at your work. And so I've had many opportunities just through that. And then there's tiers, right? Like you get the 200 finalists, and then you get the top 50. And if you get the top 50, then there's three more prizes. And then the prizes are like, one is a book of your work. And that year I had submitted my chicken series, but I was already working on side effects. And I got in the top 50 with the chicken series. And one was a book, which I already had. One was a show at Blue Sky Gallery, which I'd already done. And the third one was the Robert Rauschenberg residency. Well, at the time I was working in, in Chelsea and my studio was there and I was starting on the pills and I just couldn't, I didn't know what to do. I was like, well, I'm in Chelsea. I'm just gonna walk around. And I went into a gallery and Christopher Rauschenberg, Robert Rauschenberg's son, was in the gallery. I had met him at PhotoFest and he had given me a show at Blue Sky Gallery with the chickens. And he just at that moment said, I'm having some friends over at um, my mom's studio in Williamsburg. Will you stop by and show us what you're working on? I hadn't shown anyone the pills. I didn't know what to do with them. I was just making patterns. And so I showed up with a few like prints I'd made. And it turns out that Christopher's wife, Janet, is a nurse. And she came over to me and she's like, what are you working on? And we start talking about polypharmacy, which I'd never heard of that before, which is when a person has several illnesses and they have taking all this medication and they cross pollinate in the body and it's just a mess. And they both got super excited about the work. And then I got a call the next week that they had chosen me for the Rauschenberg residency because of the pills, not even for the, you know, I was at critical mass for the chicken. So it was kind of crazy in that way of having a true voice and knowing what you want to say. And it felt like the doors just flew open all the way to the show. And then when I met with Kathy Kimball, who is the director at the Institute of Contemporary Art at PhotoFest, I showed her a piece of a quilt, the book, and a diorama of what I wanted to do. And she gave me the show. And from there, just like more doors opened. And the show was an incredible experience. That is an amazing story. And it's totally in line with everything um, my life coach, Jill Richberg, always tells me. She was on a past episode talking about when you're on purpose, things just tend to work out. Like the universe helps you along when you're on your purpose. And it sounds like this was just completely on purpose for you. What was it that made you think, let me go for that walk with that Chelsea gallery? I just, I needed some inspiration randomly. It was a photography gallery, but it was just random. And I I knew I was onto something. I just didn't know what. And I was going to go out and look for, you know, I'm inspired by art, obviously. I'm inspired by lots of things, but 
I am inspired by what others are doing. And, you know, I just, it just seems like the wind blew me there. It's yeah. just a miracle that that happened. That is totally a universe helping you along because you're on your purpose story, according to Jill Richburg. My, I'm a true <laughs> believer. I am a true believer. Yes. And you mentioned the chickens, and that's actually how I first met you was I bought a couple of your chicken prints, which I adore. Could you talk about your chicken work? Yes, of course. Um, my uncle is a lifelong breeder, they call them, for the fancy, which is a great name. It's for the web of chicken shows that so few people know about. It's this wonderful world, just this crazy subculture in which people choose their favorite chickens from like 4-H and they spend their lives perfecting a breed through the standard of perfection, which is a book that's been in existence for like 100 years. When they showed chickens at Madison Square Garden where gentlemen, farmers in their top hats would come and show their prized poultry. Anyway, my uncle, I was very young. I had just moved to Atlanta after graduating from college. And he's just one of these wonderful human beings who would talk to me. And he's like, let's go sit out by the hen house. And we'd get a couple of lawn chairs. And I'd, he'd let me tell my like 21-year-old problems. And he's so sweet. And then one day, I was, he was in Athens, Georgia, and I was in Atlanta. He's like, why don't you go to a poultry show with me? I was like, that sounds weird. And I walked in, like, in the smell and the sound. I was just like, I looked, took one look at these birds, and I had never seen anything so amazing. The colors, the shapes, the sounds. But what struck me was the personalities. They just would look at you, and they cock their head, and then they would just strut away from you, or they tr- they just they had personalities. And I was blown away. And so years later, I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, and... I saw a picture of a chicken somewhere and I was like, light bulb, it was in a studio. It was like someone had just put a chicken on a background. It wasn't even, didn't even look that great. And so I called my uncle. I'm like, who can you hook me up with? And of course he wrote for the poultry press and he knew everybody (laughs) and he'd been, he had also, I know, right? The poultry press. (laughs) I know, it's a thing. Oh, we would look, we would wait anxiously every month to get our poultry press. Of course, now it's probably online, but this was back in like, you know, the early nineties. So I, I didn't even know how to shoot on location. I borrowed a car. I borrowed a camera. I started shooting four by five chickens, which you cannot shoot anything that's live with a four by five camera. I, di- I forgot my sync cord the very first time, so I couldn't even connect the camera to the sync cord. I, I just, it was a mess for like five or six times, but I just loved it. I just loved being with the birds. When I got home and I was looking, I shot transparency, you know, I shot film and I got my loop out and I looked at it really close and that bird was looking into the camera. I mean, I might've been eight feet away. He was looking into my camera and like posing and it just compelled me. And from there, so many things happen. Again, the doors flew open. I happened to meet a woman at a party in Chicago when I lived, that's where I lived at the time. She's like, I'm a producer for This American Life. And I'm like, well, I shoot chickens. <laughs> and then, you know, <laughs> you know, I was totally intimidated. Julie Schneider, who is now like a big shot. She's having, she's speaking at BAM about a new series. She's, she's awesome. And Then all of a sudden, I was on This American Life with Ira Glass, and the Chicago Tribune magazine did a cover story on, that was the highlight of my life. Those were like huge 
huge for me. And then the book happened. My first book, The Ferris Fowl, which came out in 2001, not perfectly timed, but I was on CNN and that was, it was like a full on interview. Um, that is amazing. Yeah. And then you have a second chicken book. I did. So once that book happened, I moved to New York with a very nice man who I ended up married and having a child with. I, I was working, you know, I was working at a studio. That was that was my main job on and off was assisting and producing and being a studio manager. And I was working for like a very busy photographer, barely doing anything. And I finally had to quit. And then I had a baby and, you know, I was shooting commercially and things were going well, but I was like, I'm not doing anything artistic. And I was just thinking about like, what are some of the challenges? And as an artist, you know, the number one challenge is inspiration and then money and then time. So, you know, I was like, okay, I have a baby. I'm so busy, but I have to do something artistic. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not done with the chicken jet. I want to do some more. And so I started doing the poultry shows in and around New York City, you know, Boston and, you know, wherever, Connecticut and New Jersey, where all the poultry shows were in this area. And they are everywhere. It's so surprising. Really? <laughs> I had no idea. You should treat yourself to one. Sometimes it's wonderful. They have like these wonderful lotteries where you can win a pie or a bag of feed or a chicken. Yeah, I've got so many cool things and it's wonderful. So the the second book, people were like patting me on the head. Oh, chickens are so cute. They're so cute. They're, I was just like, oh, you don't know what this is about. And I, it's kind of interesting what I think they're about now. That's another story. So the, the second book came out and they started to get attention from galleries and museums in a way that now I've been collected into a few museums. So I'm very proud of the chicken work and it's gone on and on. I'm constantly in magazines. I'm talking about them a lot with a variety of people and I still sell prints and there's something that's very near and dear to my heart. I love them. And you know what I think is so amazing about the ones at least that I saw is that they look so regal, right? Like you said, it's like a portrait and, and they just look so royal and regal and, and proud and noble, you know? Yes, there's personalities. But the thing is, is like death has kind of been a string of in my work. And I look at these chickens and I think, we eat your kind. We eat your kind day in and day out. And here you are posing for me and giving me your vulnerability and you're looking in my eye. And it gives me like, I, I mean, I respect them. You know, like talk about respecting a chicken. I respect them because they, according to many people, they're stupid, but I do not believe that. I think they're at least as smart as cats, okay? For you cat lovers out there. You know, you've been telling me all about the amazing things that have happened in your career. Is there anything that stands out in your mind as something that you're like really the most proud of? Oh, there were so many. I think the Rauschenberg residency was the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me, other than my child, of course, <laughs> because it changed me forever. I was able to go spend five weeks on a tropical island where the staff, their motto is, how do we get to yes? Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. How do we get to yes? I had never been supported like that from anywhere, anyhow. And they're like, whatever you want to do, we will make it happen for you. And so right off the bat, that's amazing. Number two, 
they cook for you. Um, that alone would do it for me. But yeah, that was <laughs> you had me at cooking. But as a mother, that's your whole life, and so those concerns were gone. Then there was a staff, and then I just had the freedom to fly, and I was with seven world-renowned artists. I was not in their league. I'm just going to say that. I am now because I got to see what they do, how they do it. I saw their practice, and it changed my practice. It changed how I saw myself. It was the first time I just, like, put up my flag, and I'm like, I'm an artist, and that's what I do. And I have to say, I have not really pursued my commercial work, but it keeps coming back because people see that what I'm doing is serious. I am competent in what I'm doing. I feel confident, and it's all together. That sounds completely amazing. What was it about watching what the other artists did? Like, Could you give us one example of, of what you learned from these other artists in terms of their approach? I guess it was just their dogged approach to it. You know, they just... That's what they did from the minute we got, we worked 10 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, I went there with my Mahjong set. I was like, we're going to have girls night and we're going to do this. And they were like, Ugh. you know, they, they did not find me amusing at all. And, you know, I'm very social and it wasn't a social atmosphere and that was hard for me, but it was good for me. So I guess it was just the fact that they would pick something and they just ran toward it. And they were going to spend five weeks, night and day, until they had an end result. Or, you know, you can't make a body of work in five weeks, but you can certainly get focused in a way. And that's happened to me, too. The I mean, focus. I worked on three different projects while I was there, and the side effects was a big one. And I went there to work on that. But then there were other things that caught my eye, and I, I was free to do what I wanted, and I had the resources to do it. So I started doing video work, which has become part of my work now. And I've got another brand-new project I'm doing. I have one for side effects, and then I made one there that I still love, and I have still not had time to put it together because side effects has been all-consuming. Well, you haven't had time, but it's been for a good reason, right? Yes, Absolutely. So now that you've come along to this point in your career, are there things that you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting out? Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So many things. Number one, like, be patient. There was a woman next door who moved into the studio next door, and I met her, and she's like, I got people to pay for my first year of my studio through Kickstarter. I was like, wow, that's so smart, you know? But then when the year was up, she's like, well, I guess I'm moving out. And I was like, what? You gave it a year, one year. I've been doing this for like 20-something years, you know? <laughs> I'm like, what are you thinking? So I think be patient, be kind to yourself, and just be open. I meditate, and I'm a big believer in visualization. If I'm kind of broke, I will just sit down and visualize every day for five minutes depositing checks into my checking account. This past year, I've really realized I needed help. I need help so bad. I visualize myself in a bigger studio because now my studio is too small. I visualize people around me helping me. I visualize money pouring into my account. And not to be rich. I don't even care about that. I don't care. I mean, you know, money is important, but I care about being able to support myself and having the lifestyle to support my child and myself and making sure we're taken care of. So being open being nice to yourself, being patient, and visualizing what you want 
are everything. Yeah, the visualizing was something that I didn't realize that I always do. And I had an interview recently where the woman who does coaching said to me, well, you're lucky that you visualize yourself excelling at things because most people visualize the bad situation. Right. Like I, you know, if I've got a something coming up that I'm nervous about, I always just imagine in my head it going really well. I don't know when I started doing that. And it's not really even like a meditation practice. It's just part of my coping in the preparation, you know. And I just do that naturally. And I can't imagine if what I did was imagine myself failing. That would just be, I would not be able to move forward. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, once you go down that rabbit hole, I always tell my son, you are what you eat. You know, it's kind of that thing. You know, like if you're just thinking you're a piece of crap, then that's how people are going to see you. That's how you're going to see yourself. You're going to project that. So it's very important for me. It's been my saving grace many times. And sometimes I just have to look in the mirror and say, you're amazing. You know, like I can certainly feel sorry for myself at times when things don't go my way. But I try to snap out of it quickly because that doesn't do anybody any good. No, it doesn't work. Um, Have you had mentors that have helped you along or have you kind of just made your own way? I've had so many people help me from varying directions. A lot of people that I've worked with, Todd Rosenberg, like one of the first people who I assisted in Chicago, just a character. And we had fun. He showed me how to have fun on shoots. And then in terms of artistically, art and commerce, Lori Rubin is a photographer in Chicago when I worked there. Um, and she was one of only three successful photographers, women photographers in Chicago in the 80s. And she's, she went on to, she directs commercials now. And she's, she just, I worked for her as a studio manager when I was 29. And I was sort of transitioning at the time trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was another crazy story. I was started a housekeeping business with my girlfriend and just like, we would like, you know, clean houses in the morning and drink beer on my roof deck. And one day this woman called me, she was like, Lori Rubin needs a, a studio manager. I was like, no, thanks. I've got a job. And so I go down to the local bar to have an afternoon drink. And there's a woman behind the bar and she's like, you go home right now. She's like, you go home right now and you call that woman back and you have that interview. And I was like, oh, okay. Because she had a housekeeping business and she was a bartender. So I did. And Lori was just one of these amazing people who like really cleaned up in the 80s and 90s with advertising when there were big budgets. But she would hire someone to go out and prop shop. She had a brilliant vision of everything she wanted to do. And she would go over to a table or five tables full of things. She'd pick three put them on the backdrop, and it would bring me to tears. I mean, I don't know how she did that. Like, it just, to this day, I always think back. I look, still look at her work and try to emulate and be inspired by what she does, her lighting. And we became friends later in life, and I just think she's amazing. What has it been like um, being a woman as a photographer? I mean, have you felt your gender in your, in your career? Well, it was really hard to be an assistant because physically it's very demanding. And I think it's probably changed. Um, You know, when I started out, you know, 30 years ago, it was a very different situation. But yes, I got stuck in the darkroom. You know, I didn't get to go on set so much. I got put in it, you know, and so I immediately started being a prop stylist, which developed me in a whole different way. You know, it made me think about what was 
on set as opposed to the lighting. And it took me a lot longer to figure out the photography part of it, but I was always interested in the subject matter anyway. And then I went immediately to being like a studio producer, which was great fun, but always like made me feel lacking. And getting back to the photography in terms now, it's like, I don't feel like it's such an issue with getting jobs and so forth, but starting out, it was much more difficult because most of the men were photographers and they had their assistants and those are the people that they mentored to be photographers. You know, right. like you're behind the desk. What do you know? You know, like, but I'm doing a lot more now than those assistants probably were in terms of being an artist. And Right. So those advantages of having, you know, when the big photographers were primarily men and they're bringing along and, and training mostly men, viewing them like, oh, there's me. That's what I reminds me of me when I was exactly. younger. Um, <laughs> but things have changed. Yeah. They really have. I know that I have an intern now who's 20 and she doesn't even like think about it twice. That's you good. Know? Yeah. What I've heard a lot from people on this show is that when you're starting out a lot of times is not when you face the discrimination as much. It's when you get to the top higher levels right. and you become more of a threat. Right. So as you've gotten some of these prestigious awards and been chosen in the top of these, like the competitions that you're mentioning, you know, have you, have you seen any issues in that way? You know, you know, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of women in their 50s now, are kind of ruling the photography world. That's I see awesome. a lot of women who are older. So I don't really feel that. Yeah. I feel like I see a lot of my peers are my age, and they're making it now, and they're, they're killing it too. So it's nice to go to PhotoFest in Houston, which I'm going to later this month. And I'll see a lot of women there making art about a lot of different things. And I'm not really, in terms of, Artistically, I've not really seen that. And I feel very isolated when it comes to my commercial work. I work alone a lot, you know. I don't really feel that competition. I will say I felt that earlier on when when we were breaking out as assistants and the men were getting the jobs that I wasn't getting. Mm -hmm. I did feel that, but that was 20, 25 years ago. And my commercial work has been oddly a mix of my prop work and my artistic eye because I've had this niche where I photograph, I, I do photography for book covers. I work for some of the top art directors in the city. I'm very fortunate that way. And it's my own little niche. There's only a handful of us. So oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And I get to, you know, they give me an idea of a theme. Sometimes they give me layouts, but sometimes I get to come up with my own ideas and I work with the art directors and then I walk into a bookstore and there's my cover. It's really thrilling. That's super cool. And it's not just photography books, but all kinds of books. No, no. Yeah, it's mostly um, literature. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I've been forever on my to-do list is to write a book. So I'll oh, have to. Perfect. <laughs> it's going to happen one of these days. I don't know if it's going to be 2018. It might be 2019. <laughs> um, a lot of the people on this show have talked about how they have a squad or a personal advisory board or, you know, just a support system that helps them along. Have you had that in your career? I have always relied on my circle of girlfriends to bolster me, to point me in the right direction. I've always relied on them and I'm very fortunate to have such close friends. I have 
I have many, and I hate to call them out individually because some might get hurt, but my friend Beth Hall is Thrasher. I've known her since I was in college, and I can call her at any point in time, and she will just be mad that anything has gone wrong with me. And she's like my personal cheerleader. And she's like, I'm going to just call you up tomorrow and tell you you're the greatest thing on earth. And I do the same thing for her. I've known her through all of her life, you know, her children or marriage or like all the problems that happen along life's road. And we we sort of have these parallel lives. I have another friend, Sharon Harper, who's a well-known art photographer and She's the same way, like whenever I need guidance and she's just great fun and I can always rely on her. So beyond that, I have so many, I have friends who are very um, adept in personal care of the body and, you know, like everything about my life, I find that I always go to my group of women friends. I feel like they have all of my answers. Before I do a Google, before I, (laughs) I will call one of my friends, maybe four of them. Or I'll make sure, like, okay, the end of this week, I need to get, like, my Mahjong group together because I know that they're going to be a great support for what's happening here. And they're going to be in my court. Or they're going to be excited for what happened to me. And that has never steered me wrong. It's so interesting um, to think about this in terms of, you know, the gender challenges that women face in the workforce. And everyone I've talked to has talked about how important their support network of friends is, or a lot of people have. And it might be actually an advantage that women have over men. I would agree. They don't have that at all. They don't talk about, I can meet any woman on the street and I will tell her the intimate details of my life and walk away with a nugget of knowledge and wisdom that would have taken anybody years to meditate on. (laughs) Some guys are better at it than others, but I definitely think it's much more common among women to have that kind of support system. I know some men tend to be in some of these like more formal mastermind groups and those help a lot. But um, it's interesting because I, I think a lot about what are our superpowers as women. And, you know, a lot of people I've talked to have talked about how their intuition really helps them in their career. Their ability to listen really helps them in their career. Their ability to understand the needs of their clients. You know, a lot of these things their ability to collaborate. A lot of these characteristics that are kind of stereotypical female characteristics and never really, really given any true value in business or the world and the career world actually are, you know, these crazy strengths and advantages that we have. So it's really interesting to add that to it, you know, the uh, ability to call on kind of our own personal advisory boards or however you want to call it. Absolutely. I feel like I wouldn't be where I am without that support because I think when in a relationship, you know, with with your significant other, they can be, of course, very supportive, but it's different. It's from a different perspective. It's too much like, okay, well, if I support her in this way and she can be upset or like, it's a a little bit about holding back, you know, that you don't do too much or or like change, like if I support her in that way, how's that going to impact me? So when it's with your women friends, they're just like balls out, you know, go for it. Don't think about anything else. And that's the best advice that anybody can hear is that you have to be true to yourself in order to find who you are and be who you're supposed to be. 
And that's really difficult to do. I feel like that's come to me through age and maturity. And that's another thing. Like I look at my little, and I shouldn't call her little. She's a sweet woman who's 20 and she just thinks she knows everything. And I'm just like, hold on. I don't even know anything and I've got some years on you. So just absorb it and be open. There's a lot of things that have come through age for me as well. And part of the goal of the podcast is to kind of short circuit some of that. And I do think, you know, for the younger generation, so that we can save some of the younger women, the obstacles that we've gone through. Although I have to say, I've interviewed some of the millennial women on this show and a lot of them do have a lot figured out. I'm like, you guys have a lot figured out. (laughs) I agree because you know what? They don't have a lot of the barriers that we had as women. I have been patted on the head so many times and we just accepted it. I talked to my, my mother-in-law recently and she's like, I think these women are just going too far talking about all their trash, you know, that that this happened to them. And that I was like, they're not talking about it too much. They're talking about it just enough. And that is the difference generationally. We didn't talk about it at all. We didn't, we shut our mouths and that's the problem. And I have a lot of respect. They, the millennials have, don't have a lot of the baggage that we have. They have their own baggage. They've got some political baggage they're going to have to deal with. But I feel like the past couple of years have been the years of the woman, like yeah. empowered. I hope that they understand the power of feminism and the history of what has come before them. Yeah, I think finally there's been an awakening because I had felt like definitely in the 90s and the 2000s, it was a lot more of like, everything is equal. It was right. just kind of like, we're in a post-feminist world and everything is equal. And the younger women being like, oh, there's old feminists. And, you know, not really understanding that. I think those obstacles are still there, but the millennial generation is like, we're not going to put up with it. Right. And I love that. Yeah, I do too. I really love that. And I think maybe it's the information age or whatnot. They've seen all this stuff about being true to yourself. And I really just figured that out very recently. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I mean, from my mother to me to now my son, there's been huge leaps made. And just the, even the, the, the language that we use surrounding race and gender has just exploded or inflated or like deflated. I don't know. It's different. And that just makes it so much easier for them to exist in a world where things are really equal, or at least there's a conversation around it. But hopefully they're still listening to uh, older women like us as we tell the lessons that we've learned. Because I do hope that, you know, I look back and I'm like, oh, I wish I would have gotten to the state that I am now sooner. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, it's interesting as a mom, I see my son, I'm like, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't. No, no, no. I don't want you to mess up. And then when I look back at how I've progressed, I never learned a lesson without failing. Right. I mean, all my lessons come through failure. Right. And it's hard to let your kids do that. But I'm trying desperately to keep my mouth shut and to let him cut himself with a knife or whatever <laughs> ridiculous things that he's, you know. There was someone who said that every night at dinner, their father said at the dinner table, how did you fail today? Wow. And that that was like celebrated at the dinner table. Wow. That's amazing. 
And I thought that was a great thing to do. And I've been, I've been meaning to do it. My daughter and I have done a little bit of like, you have to do something that scares you today. We'll say each other that to that in the morning. And at the end of the day, what did you do that scared you? And some days you can say something and some days you're like, eh, not really. I didn't do anything that scared me today. Well, that's what I say to my son, too. I have heard, like, you're supposed to do something that scares you every single day. Because he's like, I'm afraid of this or I'm afraid of that. I'm like, good. Then you're on the right track. Right. Because if I, I, I mean, I certainly feel that way. When I'm terrified of something, I'm like, okay, I need to go toward that. And that's a, that's also something with when you deal with anxiety, they talk about, like, what you would think is you want to run away. But what you're actually supposed to do when you're having anxiety is run toward the fear. And it will dissipate. Like, that's wow. brilliant. I know. And it works, too. You know, you hear, you hear advice of, like, play to your strengths. Mm-hmm. And then if you play to your strengths, you're kind of staying more in your comfort zone. Yes. And there's some weaknesses that I know I have in my professionally that have kind of held me back in some ways. Like, I hate doing sales. Right. I've been thinking, reading a lot of things lately that are, like, go towards the growth. So what, you, oh. what you're terrible at is actually right. what you should be, you know, trying to work toward. I feel like that's kind of been my career path like I'm I just feel like I find what I can't do and once I master something I'm completely bored right me too and I want to go straight to what I can't I want to I love that feeling of like starting at nothing and then moving to something and then of course getting bored with that and trying something (laughs) else I mean I don't know how productive that is I'm not really like I think it's very productive because then you're just amassing I used to always feel that way about myself because I changed so much I get bored really easily and then I can't stand to do it and then I want to change and sometimes I'm like, just stop changing. You're not you're not gonna be building up anything meaningful if you keep changing. But now the benefit of more years and more hindsight, I actually think it has really, really helped me because it's just given me so many different skill sets that now work together and form who I am. Yeah, agreed. I feel that way too with just in my artistic career, you know, just again, being open and seeing a path that you're like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to do that. Like going from two dimensional work to making an installation, you know, I would have never thought that I, that would even be possible, but it had to be done. Like there was, to me, I was blind, you know, I just put on blinders and moved toward that. And I've got another project I'm just starting to research where it's going to include sculptures. I feel like I want to make sculpture. I don't know why, that I'm really working toward that end. And it's scary because, you know, inspiration, time, money, (laughs) time, money. Um, But it's a new and exciting place for me. And if you're not excited about what you're doing, what is the point? Especially if you're an artist. You know, sometimes I feel like, okay, I went from chickens to pharmaceuticals. I mean, are people going to accept that? And I'll tell you that when, I think I was saying before, like when I started doing the chickens, people made fun of me. Oh yeah, I'm sure. They laughed. They're like, that's hilarious. No one's ever going to take this seriously. Well, guess what? I have two books. I'm published everywhere in every magazine ever possible, newspapers. And, you know, I, I have my work is collected into museums. And now I'm making a new project that people are really getting behind. And then they're still saying, I love your chickens. And this, this, the work that you encountered was a brand new project. I just started doing that project where I made these cameos because I knew the people in Dimas Park really loved my work and I wanted to share something new with them. And I spent a very long time making that work and so much is coming out of that. I've got a, a, a new, I'm working on right now with a writer and there's a new magazine that's really interested in publishing that work. 
and you know, maybe there'll be shows for that. So you never know. Well, Tamara, this has been so inspiring. I'm really excited to keep uh, tabs on what you have going on next. For our listeners to um, follow what you're doing, where should they find you on the internet? Well, they can find me on Instagram. I'm Tamara Staples. And I also have a website, TamaraStaples.com. And you'll find both my artwork and my commercial work cozied up next to each other because I feel like they're all one thing there. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, well, thank you. This has been fun. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.